Well, you know, one, one thing I think about a lot during my formative years in my 20s, I read a lot of Gary Snyder poetry. And Gary Snyder once defined affluent is not needing anything. And that is something that I've carried with me my whole life. Um, you know, from a very early age, I never wanted to be rich. I never wanted to be successful in terms of like job title or anything like that. I always wanted to feel like I don't need anything more. Ah. And that, that definition of affluence really stuck with me. Life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. This month, I'm speaking with Scott Bossy, Regional Director of the Northern Rockies Office of American Rivers, a nonprofit devoted to clean water and healthy rivers. First and foremost, Scott is a champion of the natural world. He is a hunter, angler, and gatherer of wild foods. He is a conservation scientist who currently advocates for rivers and their ecosystems in ways that influence policy and legislation at the federal and state levels. He works with local citizens, sports people, businesses, and conservation organizations to build support for river protection efforts in eastern Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. In every interaction, Scott brings his devotion to and passion for the well-being of all beings, including the people with whom he works. Listen for the way Scott anchors his way of knowing in a clear, present, and reciprocal love of the natural world. There are clues here for all of us. Well, hey, Scott Bossy, thank you for being here today. I'm really glad that you've joined us for this conversation. Um, one of the things that I like to start with, with this um, podcast, which we call How It Looks From Here, is uh, to ask literally or figuratively, how do things look? How does the world look to you today? Um, I went out at lunchtime and took a ski for about an hour. And you probably know this, Mary, cause it was about 15 degrees and bluebird sky with fresh snow. So um, my perspective is really clear and happy today. Um, when I get outside and enjoy nature, it just makes my life a whole lot better. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. So did you ski right out the door of your house? No, I went over to Bridger Creek. Oh, okay, still lovely. What a lovely It was lovely. Do. Yeah, yeah, well... Um, I know that you're just back from the D.C. area, and I know that a lot of your work is about, at this point, is advocating for clean water and clean rivers. But you're, you're committed in your career to conservation. 
But I also know that you get to hang out with people who are making policy and who are articulating legislation. What is your take from that? How's the climate doing over there? <laughs> the political climate or the climate climate? The <laughs> yeah, climate. I would say both. <laughs> they seem to have some impact. Yeah. You know, we have a very unhealthy political system in this country, and it's really driven by our campaign finance system. So, you know, I work for a public interest organization, and we advocate for clean water and healthy rivers for all. But I recognize when I'm meeting with a U.S. senator or a congressman or a member of the administration that they listen to their donors first and foremost, and that's really not a level playing field. Mm. And so the the burden is really on us as citizens and public advocates to recognize that and then to use all the collective power we have to try and change that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah, so, so this is kind of an interesting thing. You are in a situation where the way the world looks to you is different from the way it looks to these policymakers that you're meeting with, you know, and... and how do you find yourself? And I know you're a, a scientist at heart and yeah. an, an outdoors person. You know, that's who you are. And so then you take that to D.C. How does it work for you? How do you speak with these people? Well, I think it really all boils down to psychology. Ah. I mean, every elected official, whether they're a man or a woman or, um, or young or old or, or black or white, they, they're human beings and they have an inner child in them. So they're sensitive and they want to be loved and they want to be recognized. So I try and connect with elected officials at a real visceral personal level. So we talk about family and we talk about fishing, we talk about hunting and our outdoor experiences. And it's a lot less transactional than, than the dialogue they're used to having with a private interest lobbyist, for instance. Uh, for instance, yes. And I, re I really think it all boils down to relationships and understanding what motivates people to take certain actions. Well, I'm just so struck. I'm curious what you would say to the question, what captured your attention when you were young that made it so you fell in love with the natural world? Well, like, you know, we didn't have video games and laptop computers, so it made it a lot easier to just, you know, when you were bored, you went outside, right? And um, I split my time between northern New York State and South Florida. And I was always outside. You know, I was, I was playing in the woods, I was picking up snakes, I was snorkeling and swimming in the ocean, playing with alligators while fishing on the canal in my backyard in Florida. So... You know, when you don't have technology to be obsessed with as a kid, you go outside and you just, I mean, it's its really an amazing world if you, if you just absorb it. And then you moved from that into uh, choosing to go to learn more about conservation science. Was that an accident or was it just you following what was most interesting to you? Oh, boy. I've always been, I've always gravitated towards the outdoors. I've always been fascinated by nature, but I did have one life-changing experience in the late 1980s. I was actually commercial salmon fishing in Alaska when the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in Prince William Sound. Wow. And our fishing season was shut down that year. 
and I was going to grad school that fall and I had to make money. So I ended up getting a job on the oil spill cleanup and it was a really deeply traumatic experience uh. for me. Um, I made plenty of money, but it, it definitely wasn't worth it um, because of the trauma that I went through. I mean, day after day after day, tagging and bagging dead oil covered animals and then um, having bonfires at the beach at night with, with dead otters and eagles and all uh. kinds of seabirds. So that actually changed my life's path and made me decide right then and there that I was going to go into conservation for my career. Well, yes, I don't wish those kind of awful things on anyone and that it delivered you and your energy to this kind of work. Yes, um, thank you for all of that. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes sometimes trauma can actually put us on the path that we isn't that something all along. Yeah, and so then then thinking back to what you were saying earlier about the relational part of um, doing what you can to influence policy. Um, how I, I, those every one that you talk with has been through a childhood as well. Oh yeah. And and so there are really things for you to connect with each other on stories yeah i literally when i'm meeting with an elected official yeah i i try and picture them as like a 10 year old kid because that's that's really who they are you never really lose those inner bearings i mean your body gets older but your soul is kind of i think who you are as that as that child and you carry that with you the rest of your life yeah, one of the things that we found ourselves writing about in the full ecology book was how the the land jumps into you and helps you know who you are. Yeah, you know, and, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, is there a story that you can tell about influencing the thinking of a a policymaker around the well-being of rivers in the past? You've been working with American Rivers since '09, right? So, yeah, yeah. But I've been, you know, I've been working in conservation for. 25 years, I guess it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, I can, I can think of a lot of instances where I've tried to remind elected officials that people will not remember them for the tax cuts they advocated for or the loopholes for, for big oil and gas companies or any number of things they do in elected office, but they will always remember you for the land and water that you protected for them and, and for their kids and their grandkids. So I remember um, our former Democratic governor in Montana, Brian Schweitzer, in 2000, I think he got elected governor. And on the eve of the election, I made a little card for him, like a business card with a, with a photo of the crazy mountains in Montana that I had taken. And I wrote something on the back of, it, of that card reminding him that when he was governor, people will remember you for what you did for the land and the water and the wildlife. They won't remember you for much else. So I've, I've done that with an, any number of elected officials. You know, I've reminded our senior Senator John Tester of that. I've told Steve Daines, our junior Senator that. I, uh, I worked on a big wild and scenic rivers bill with the late Senator Craig Thomas from Wyoming. And, uh, you know, in speaking to him and his wife, when he had been reelected and he knew it was his last term in the Senate, we all agreed that like, you know, protecting rivers around Jackson Hole, Wyoming would be a great final legacy for him to leave. 
and he and his wife totally latched onto it because they grew up right outside Yellowstone National Park and they understood the value of wild places to, to the citizens that they represent. And we got it done. Um, and so ultimately, I think people, people understand that yeah. message. Elected officials understand that if they create a new national park or wilderness area or wild and scenic river, they can achieve immortality. And that is really something a lot of them do seek. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. That's part of what draws them into that work. But at the same time, I mean, what you said earlier, that uh, everybody, everybody, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, we really want to just love and be loved. And we really want to be loved. We really want to belong. And um, that's no less true for the people who are elected into leadership positions. Yeah, it's I. Ex- it's extra true for them. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> no, I do. Yeah. Um, well, you say that your proudest achievement was uh, helping pass that federal le- legislation that protected, well, federal legislation that protected nearly 400 miles of the Snake River and its tributaries. Is that what where you were working on with that Wyoming senator? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. So how long did it take you to accomplish that? Well, of course, I didn't do it alone. Uh, I'll take credit for I'll take credit for the vision and the idea. And I pitched it to a number of people. And then collectively, you know, everyone bought into the vision and a lot of people helped get across the finish line. I was I was just a part of that team. Uh, But it took seven years. Mm. And, um, you know, another river we got protected fairly recently in 2018 was East Rosebud Creek near oh, Red Lodge, yeah. which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Yeah. And that's a, that's a stream that was threatened by a new hydropower dam. And we worked with the Montana congressional delegation, Republicans and Democrats together to get East Rosebud designated as a wild and scenic river. And that bill, it actually passed the House and the Senate unanimously, which Oh, wow. Which is really, it's, uh, it's unheard of. What, it's really what year of. did that happen here recently? It was in, it was in 2018. Oh, my it goodness. Was the only, <laughs> it was the only river in the United States that was designated wild and scenic that year. Um, like I said, it, it passed by unanimous consent in both the House and the Senate. Yeah. And that was Montana's first new wild and scenic river in 42 years. Wow. Congratulations so those and things, thank you. Those things generally take, you know, five to ten years. Uh-huh. Um, takes a lot of persistence. You got to like, you know, build coalitions and hold them together and keep them motivated and then overcome the obstacles that always present themselves. Yeah. And in general, are you, do you find yourself, um, moving towards that kind of protection when there is some sort of threat, a mining threat or something similar? You know, that's not the way I roll. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I really buy into values-based campaigns. I think it's way easier to protect the things that everyone knows and loves and values rather than wait until you hear about a new mine that's proposed in the headwaters of a river or a new dam. Because by the time you hear about those threats, the, the deal is already cooked. I mean, that, the, the dam owners, the mine owners have already negotiated with your governor and the congressional delegation, and we're the last ones to hear about it. Right. Right? So you're, you're starting behind the eight ball. Right. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break.
So in my work at American Rivers, my colleagues and I oftentimes we we start values-based campaigns to protect the things we love. And that really rallies people and unites people. Before anything, there's even an, a, an external threat. I see. Yeah, abso- yeah, absolutely. So with that Wyoming bill, you know, we got we got a dozen rivers protected in one fell swoop. Whereas with East Rosebud, that was more a defensive campaign uh-huh. to stop a dam. Yeah. And we got 20 miles of one stream protected. So yeah. that's really the difference between a proactive values-based campaign and more of a reactive defensive campaign. Very interesting, I see. Well, you know, you refer to the, uh, I mean, in in the Wyoming work, you were looking specifically at the Snake River and its tributaries, and you say that the snake is one of your favorites. What what makes, what about the river inspires you? And tell our listeners where the snake is, in case they don't know. Well, first of all, the snake, the headwaters of the Snake River are in the Teton Wilderness, which start just outside the southern boundary of Yellowstone National Park. And then the snake flows um, for a thousand miles uh, across southern Idaho and then up up to the north along the border of Idaho and Oregon. And then it meets the Columbia River in the Tri-Cities in Washington. So it's the largest tributary to the Columbia. The reason I'm so obsessed with the Snake River, well, first of all, I'm a Scorpio, so I like drawing, Uh you know. And the headwaters of the snake are some of the most pristine rivers we have in the lower 48 states. I mean, the water starts in the wilderness and we have all native fish, cutthroat trout, grizzly bears, river otters, elk, moose. I mean, the whole assemblage of species that were here two or 300 years ago are still there. The lower Snake River has been dammed and polluted since the 1960s. Um, The four lower Snake dams were built between 1961 and 1975. And those dams have destroyed one of the greatest salmon fisheries on earth. Mm-hmm. And um, in my work and American Rivers work, um, we are working to get those dams removed to restore over 5,000 miles of rivers in, in central Idaho and northeast Oregon. So salmon and steelhead and all the wildlife that depend on them and the people that depend on them for their um, nourishment and cultural sustenance can, can have them back. So the snake is really a story of two rivers. You have these pristine headwaters and these badly degraded lower reaches that have been turned into a chain of slackwater reservoirs by dams that never should have been built. Mm, mm. And that's all as it moves toward the Columbia. Yeah. 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 So it's it's a river of, of great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, literally, if we can get those dams out, and we will get those dams out in my lifetime, it's going to be the biggest ecological restoration project in history on the whole globe. Oh, I'm with you. I just so appreciate your this work of yours. This is good. I've seen and the way salmon can look when they have battered themselves coming up those um the the fish ladders to get past the dams. And um that's that's some pretty horrific work. Yeah. They, they're my to totem do. animal. I mean, salmon are so amazing. I used to work as a fishery biologist in Olympic National Park in Washington. Mm. And before the two dams on the Elwha River were removed in 2011 and 2013, I used to do snorkel surveys, starting at the base of the Elwha Dam out to the Straits of Juan de Fuca. And you'd start literally at the face of the dam wearing a dry suit with your, you know, your mask and snorkel. And there'd be salmon and steelhead literally rubbing their noses on the concrete base of the dam. Mm 
those dams have been there for over a hundred years, yeah. but those fish, re- they remember where they're supposed to go. Yeah. That they are programmed to always yeah. be optimist, to move upstream. I love to that. Keep moving. And that's your totem. <laughs> I see. Oh yeah. They it's are, fitting, they are isn't incredibly it? persistent. Yes. Yeah. yeah they never you. give up. And if you give them half a chance, they'll come back. Yes. Yes. Well, that's another story that um, we got to tell in the Full Ecology book about um, I was able to become friends with uh, Chairman Anton Menthorn of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. And he worked with ranchers and um, biologists, but in the Pendleton and Umatilla area for 15 years to get the ranchers invested in the water of the Umatilla, moving the cattle back just enough so that the temperature of the Umatilla dropped a few degrees and the salmon came back for the first time. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. Yeah. I mean, boy, salmon, salmon are the symbol of hope. Yes. And boy, do we need hope. Yeah, I'll say. Well, I, I know, Scott, that you're a, a hunter, and that you also forage in season for berries and morel mushrooms. And, of course, hmm. you are an angler. Um, how did you come to pick up these practices? Well, <laughs> <laughs> boy, I, I've always fished since I was a little kid. Can you ever and remember not? Know. No, I can yeah. never re- remember not fishing. I've literally fished since, I don't know, since I was three. Yeah. And... I've thought a lot about it as I've gotten older. Like, what is it that I'm so obsessed with, with fishing? Like, why is it so magic? And I think the conclusion I've come to is it's one of the only activities I can imagine where you can, I hate to use the word capture, but bring a wild animal, a live wild animal into your hands and hold that magic and then release it back into the wild. Yeah. And I know that sounds to a, a, to a lot of people like you're torturing that animal. And, and it's, I think there are some real ethical arguments that support that. But I've kind of come to accept that we all have our vices. None of us are perfect. And fishing is not something I, I have an interest in giving up. Yeah. <laughs> but but I am, I am so overjoyed and awed when I get to hold a salmon or a steelhead or even a saltwater fish, like a bonefish or a permit or a snook in my hands. I mean, when else do you get to hold a wild animal in your hands? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the magic of fishing. Hunting is a very different thing for me. I didn't start hunting until I was in my mid mid twenties. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, say more about that. That's a that's a, there's a quality of love in what you describe, of uh, yeah. you know of of the animal and the mm, the generosity of the animal and the sacredness yeah. of the animal and the resilience of the animal. And then in hunting, when when there is a and, and, and talk about the reciprocity. In hunting, do you feel, what is it that you give back? You know what I mean? It's such a gift yeah. on the part of a, yeah. and I know that this year you were fortunate with elk hunting. With hunting, I think I started doing it as an adult, my mid-20s, because I wanted to be more connected to my food. 
Ah. It certainly wasn't like I've never been interested in trophy hunting. That's something that I've always been repulsed by, to be honest. Uh-huh. I mean, I never pose with dead animals. And I, I, I mean, it's that that whole culture is not one that I live in. Mm-hmm. But um, as I've gotten older, so I've been hunting for, you know, 30 years now. And I've, I've probably been fortunate to take 60 or 70 animals during that time. I haven't bought meat in a store since I was in my mid twenties. Is that I mean, right? That's, that, that's what I, my wife and I subsist on. And every meal I have with an animal that I've taken hunting. I mean, I think about that animal as I sit down to the table and I think about, you know, where the sun was when it rose over the mountains, what, what the animal was doing, how I took its life and, and how it died. And it's, it's almost like a religious connection for me. It really is a religious connection. Uh I don't think the animals really voluntarily give their lives to a hunter because I think that's pretty anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. But I do think that if you spend enough time outdoors and you learn the animal's habits and you revere them and you respect them, that you will have opportunities to, to harvest them when you're lucky. And that nourishment is something that I deeply, deeply appreciate. Mm -hmm. It means everything to me. Well, and in return, you give your professional career. Well, I mean, I I dedicate my life to protecting habitat and to prevent humans from expanding and developing into places that, that deer and elk need for their winter range. And that, I mean, that's kind of the bargain I've made. Just gonna like I dedicate my my life to saving the wild. Yeah, and you know maybe there's some karma in there, and and <laughs> I don't think the animals really recognize that, but uh, I I like to think that there's some sort of deal there. Yeah, we can support each other. Yeah, yeah, it is a, a particular quality of love, and and it seems to me, and that it's it it's a kind of relationality that seems vital to any successful climate repair that humans might engage in. Would you agree with that? And how does hunting, fishing, how can hunting, fishing, and gathering um, wild foods, how do those things support our human response to cleaning up this mess we've made? Well, when you realize that your life, your religious life and your sustenance depends on healthy habitat and abundant fish and wildlife, you're, you're hopefully going to try and take care of those, of those creatures. Um, as a hunter and an angler, I really notice climate change. I mean, I notice elk hunting high up in the mountains, the, the ghost forests of whitebark pine that are all dead, largely because of climate change. Um, I notice the times when I go fishing and I bring a thermometer with me and when the water's too warm, you know, the the fish can't survive and they certainly can't survive being caught and released Mm -hmm. when, when the water's 72 degrees. So I think hunters and anglers are, are especially attuned to what's happening in nature Mm -hmm. because they're out, you know, for many, many days or weeks every year. And that connection is much stronger than if you live in a big city and you're not immersed in a stream or you're not, you know, 
in, in the mountains searching for deer or elk. It's it's hard to notice the changes when you when you live in an urban area that's separated from nature. And so people do, and and we are very fortunate to live in the places where we live. So this is a kind of um, challenging question potentially, but see what you make of it. Um, what as we come to a close with our conversation. What would you um, like to suggest that listeners consider putting in their lives? Well, really, food and water are the two things that we need. I mean, the the, the basic elements that we need for survival. Everything else, like you know, the shelter and love, <laughs> career, money, the, those come later. Yeah. And so I think, I think if we really meditate a lot more about where our food and water comes from and what it takes to keep us alive. Whether that's, um, you know, whether that's from fishing or hunting, if that's how you obtain your food, obviously you're going to have that strong connection to the natural world. But if, if you're used to going to a grocery store to get your food, or if you're used to getting your water from the tap, think really hard about what you're buying and where that food is coming from and what we're putting in it and what impacts your, your eating and drinking or having on the environment. Hmm. So you don't have to fish and hunt all the time to be connected to your food, but you do need to be aware of where it comes from and what goes into making that for you. The relationship and the gratitude. Yeah. And you, you can have that in the middle of New York City or in the wilds of Montana. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. And any other thoughts here at the very end? We'll be putting um, some in the show notes. We'll be putting information for how people can find out more about you and about American Rivers. And uh, anything else that you think that uh, listeners might be interested in reading related to um, the experience of, of being outdoors with wild nature. You just let us know and we'll put it in the list. Well, you know, one, one thing I think about a lot during my formative years in my twenties, I read a lot of Gary Snyder poetry. Ah, yes. And Gary Snyder once defined affluence is not needing anything. And that is something that I've carried with me my whole life. Um, you know, from a very early age, I never wanted to be rich. I never wanted to be successful in terms of like job title or anything like that. I always wanted to feel like I don't need anything more. Ah. And that, that definition of affluence really stuck with me. Beautiful. And I feel living in Montana and being able to get out in the land and in the water all the time, like. I, I'm one of the richest people I know. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. That's wonderful. <laughs> Just don't ask me for money. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being with us today. It was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. You can learn more about Scott and American Rivers at www.americanrivers.org. Also, check out the links in the show notes to several of Scott's essays. And next time you have a chance, look for Scott's favorite poet, Gary Snyder. In particular, Snyder's poetry collection, 
entitled Turtle Island. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. And now, before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Gary Ferguson. Music by Gary Ferguson and Cedar Mathers Wynn. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.